Welcome to another episode of the Tom Shimmer Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone. I hope everyone had a great weekend. I'm producing the podcast on the road again this week. Uh, this week, I'm in Illinois. So I'm really looking forward to another great week of workshops and meetings with so many educators deeply invested in their assessment and grading work. I just love being back out here with people, being back out face-to-face and really rolling up our sleeves and getting into the work. Thanks for listening in again this week. And as always, a big welcome to any new listeners joining in for the first time. Your listening and following the podcast is greatly appreciated. And of course, if you enjoy the podcast, please don't hesitate to spread the word on social media or with your friends and colleagues. Today, my guest is Phyllis Fagel. Phyllis is a licensed clinical professional counselor and a nationally recognized expert. We're going to dive into how educators can develop strong relationships with families and also discuss the uniqueness of middle school those students in those middle years, and what makes them such a special group to work with. In Assessment Corner this week, rather than talk about a specific strategy or topic, I'm going to address a particular mindset around assessment that seems to be fairly pervasive, but is one we need to be cautious of. So, that's today's plan. Let's get to it. My interview with Phyllis Fagel is coming up, but first, don't at me. But I want to open this week with a bit of a rant, so fasten your seatbelts. Now, I've talked about student accountability for a few times in the past, but it keeps coming up either in workshops or on social media. And honestly, I've kind of had it. So here goes. It's 2021, people. Either many of us are refusing to distinguish between a penalty and a deadline, or we are disingenuously conflating the two. It's apples and oranges, people. Apples and oranges. Whenever I get into discussions about zeros and late penalties, the rebuttal is always, but deadlines matter. Here's what has me fired up. Either you can't tell the difference between a deadline and a penalty, or you're resorting to an intentional distraction through fear-mongering. couching it as a life lesson that apparently the rest of us are just naive about. Deadlines? What are those? Never heard of them. Teaching, and I'm using serious air quotes here, teaching through threats and punishment is not teaching. I've said this before, but it's worth repeating here. When we teach any academic skill, we don't utilize a pedagogy of punishment and fear. We never think the pathway to proficiency is through consequencing the absence of the skill. How can anyone with a straight face say we're teaching them responsibility when all they do is apply a consequence resulting from the absence of responsibility? Punishing the absence of a skill doesn't produce the skill. So I or others on social media assert that we shouldn't distort achievement levels by reducing scores for behavioral misstep and the argument back is deadlines matter? The idea that the only way to teach, again, air quotes, teach responsibility is through the grade book is already absurd. But here's the real kicker. Those making that assertion disprove that theory on a daily basis. And here's how. Every school I've ever worked with, both as an employee, but also schools that I've worked with as a consultant, expects students to act in a respectful manner. Respect to others, respect to yourself, respect for the physical environment, respect for the culture of learning, Respect is a universal expectation. I don't know any schools that don't have respect as an expectation. Now, in those schools, when students act disrespectfully, the adults hold those students accountable for their disrespectful behavior. Now, obviously, some acts of disrespect go undetected, but the adults, you know, handle those situations that are detected. When they see disrespect, they experience disrespect, or it's in their vicinity, it's handled. It gets addressed. And... I'm going to make an assertion that every school is actually fairly effective at addressing the disrespect and redirecting the student to a more respectful pro-social way of responding. Now, some students do make that more challenging than others, but for the most part, schools do an effective job of this. But the one thing that never happens when handling disrespect is grade reduction. When the behavioral misstep is disrespect, we never touch the grade book. So let me get this straight. When the behavioral misstep is disrespect, we do an effective job of holding students accountable 
for their disrespectful behavior without ever touching the gradebook. But as soon as the behavioral misstep is irresponsibility, we can't fathom the idea of holding students accountable without the gradebook. Seriously? You disprove that theory every single day. Now, I know some of you are probably thinking, why are you yelling at me, Tom? I'm with you. <laughs> You're right. Okay. Most who need to hear this are probably not listening to it. So I don't know, maybe play it for them. This whole couching it as a life lesson and how critical it is. Okay, let's test that for a moment. With any policy, there is one question that we should be constantly asking ourselves, and that's this. Is our policy producing the desired result? That's the test. Okay, so let's run with the assertion that late penalties and punitive practices are opt optimistically implemented to teach students responsibility. Okay, I don't agree with that, but let's just run with that. Okay, so ask the question, is it working? Penalties are not new, and when teachers utilize that practice, they make it clear and obvious to the students that this is what's going to happen if you miss a deadline or don't turn something in or whatever. So it's not a secret, and yet we have students still missing deadlines and not submitting assignments. In fact, students who receive multiple penalties still miss deadlines. I know that when I used to penalize late work, for example, I still had students missing deadlines. So if teaching the life lesson is the goal and the student continues to be irresponsible, wouldn't you think we would adopt a different strategy? Now, some people might say, well, Tom, listen, it works for most students. Those who continue to be irresponsible just need to get their act together and get more organized. Okay, there are so many issues with that on so many levels. First, the assumption that all of the students who submitted their assignments on time do so only because of the threat of the penalty is a big assumption. Now, while it might be true of some, to say that's the only reason that any students have met a deadline is a complete stretch. Maybe there's a correlation, maybe it's coincidental, but the idea that it's causal is a big assumption. And that, of course, that assumption is a huge one that we were making. You implemented the policy, therefore you're likely to associate any success with that choice, right? It's understandable, we're only human, but that doesn't mean you're right. So just because you think it's, it's, it's causal, that doesn't necessarily mean that you are correct. Two, is most our goal? Is that how you teach academic skills? As long as you get most students there, you're good? Hey, uh, Mr. Shimmer, I still don't understand how to problem solve using the quadratic formula. Well, listen, I only teach it one way, and if you don't get it, too bad for you. Now, I know almost no one who would say that if a student was struggling academically. So why, when it's behavioral, is it only one way? I mean, even if we agreed, which of course I don't, but even if we agreed that you could teach responsibility through the application of a penalty, and it didn't work, wouldn't you try a different method? Applying more penalty is the equivalent of thinking louder and slower will teach problem solving. Three, submitting work late is not the only act of irresponsibility. So we really do cherry pick, don't we? Being late to class is also an act of irresponsibility. So is arriving to class unprepared without certain materials. But in both of those cases, we never touch the gradebook. Wait. I thought teaching responsibility through lowering someone's grade was the tried and true method. So not only do we cherry pick between certain behavioral missteps, we cherry pick inside the behavioral misstep. We don't even apply it to all acts of irresponsibility. Again, the question, is it producing the desired result? Decades worth of penalties and we still have students missing deadlines and not submitting works. Decades, people, yet here we are. Holding students accountable to deadlines can be done without distorting achievement levels. I've done it, teachers in school I've worked in have done it, and the teachers in the schools I've worked with over the years have also done it. Oh, just because you can't do it, or you can't see it, doesn't mean it's not possible. And if you can't see it, or don't know how to do it, then seek out someone who does and be open to learning something new, rather than just doubling down on the initial assertions that the pathway to proficiency is through punishment. Just be open to the conversation. Look, I know I'm ranting a bit here, 
But my rant is really directed to those who know better. But because they don't want to change, or they take student irresponsibility personally, they're just unwilling to budge. And I think that's the issue, right? We dock students for things we find personally annoying or personally intrusive, not the severity. If the severity of the act were the measure, then submitting you know, late work would be very low on the list. But it's not, is it? Right? So if I punch my classmate, you just send me to the principal, and then you get on with, your, with teaching. But if I submit something late, oh, now I've done that to you, right? And, and so you're going to dock me. Look, I can't blame anyone for not initially knowing or understanding, and, and you shouldn't either. We have to be patient with people and let them grow into a new understanding. My issue is with those who don't know or understand, ask how it might work or look differently, and then proceed to argue that, oh, that'll never work. Uh, yeah, it will. I know it will because I've done it, and so many other teachers I've worked with have done it as well. My issue is with those who continue to peddle this false equivalency between teaching responsibility and the application of a penalty. It's not teaching. Never has been, never will be. Teaching never involves punishing the absence of what you're teaching. This argument is disingenuous. I wish people would just be more honest. Just say it's your belief that students who don't do what they're told, you know, submit work on time, deserve a penalty. I'd actually respect that more if somebody would just be honest about it. But this veiling the real motives of power and control in the more noble assertion, this just isn't credible. Now, where I agree with many is that students do need to learn to be more responsible. They need to be held accountable. But that accountability has to be an accountability to the learning. Teach them how to be more organized in advance of a deadline. Teach them how to take a large project and chunk it into smaller pieces in order to pace the work. Teach them how to advocate for themselves and take responsibility for their learning. Teach them. And then stand on your chair and proclaim that you are teaching them an important life skill and an important lesson. Then I'll take the assertion seriously. But until then, I'll see the defense of penalties through the veil of a life lesson as nothing but a desperate attempt to cling to the practice of sticking it to kids who don't do what they're told. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcasts. Now let's get back to the episode. Joining me today for the interview is Phyllis Fagel. Phyllis is a licensed clinical professional counselor. She is an author of Middle School Matters, a practicing school counselor, and a psychotherapist. Phyllis is a frequent contributor to publications including The Washington Post, CNN, U.S. News and World Report, Psychology Today, and Working Mother. Her ideas have been shared in outlets including The New York Times, The Atlantic, The New Yorker, and NPR. So clearly, listeners, Phyllis is someone with a ton of credibility in her field. So Phyllis, I uh, want to welcome you to the podcast. Thank you, Tom. It's nice to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you here. It's nice to meet you. You and I have not met before. I've certainly followed your work, uh, you know, from afar, uh, but it's nice to finally meet face to face. And one of the great things I always say about this podcast is getting a chance to reach out to people's work that I admire and have them come onto the podcast and get a chance to meet them and, and hear firsthand about so many of their ideas. So I'm grateful that you've taken the time to join me today. And, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation because I think we're going to dig into some very interesting topics. Now, most of your writing is focused on, you know, advice for parents and caregivers and ways that they can both understand and support their children, but also ways that they can understand the school system, you know, itself and, and, and their role in their child's education. So I want to turn that question around and focus on educators and their interactions with families. While there are so many examples of teachers who establish great relationships with parents and caregivers, there are also many for whom there is this tension, these interactions still are a source of stress and tension. So my question to you, Phyllis, is what are we as educators still getting wrong sometimes, or what are we still misunderstanding about the teacher-parent-family dynamic? I think one of the things that teachers have to know going into any conversation or interaction with a parent is that they are talking to them about the most important person in their life, somebody who creates a tremendous amount of 
sometimes anxiety or insecurity or fear or longing or hopes and dreams for the future. There's a lot projected onto that child. And they may be worried that the teacher is judging them or finding them lacking in some way. And I think that where the misunderstandings come in is when that goes both ways. When a teacher feels like maybe a parent has an unrealistic expectation or when a teacher feels like a parent is judging them or finding them to be lacking in some area, or maybe the parent goes over their head straight to a supervisor instead of having a direct conversation with them. And so what a parent is really looking for is an authentic, non-judgmental, informative conversation about their child, something that has some problem-solving element involved, hopefully something that's solution-oriented. And they really want to know that the teacher cares and the teacher loves their child. And so making sure that that parent is having communications that aren't just related to something negative is really important. It's that connection, right? And it's always interesting to me that teachers always fear that parents are judging them as teachers and parents feel feel that and, and worry that teachers are judging them as parents. And we always have this perception that there's judgment on both ends of it. And yet trying to get to that connection and that relationship instead of it being the word I often use is clinical. It's this idea that we don't have just this clinical relationship, but that there is a real connection because you're right. Uh, it, there is nothing more precious uh, to parents, of course, than their their children, for sure. So how do we how do we break past that that judgment, that mutual kind of fear of judgment? What are some of the ways that we might do that? We had a middle school principal who recently left for another school, but one of the things he always did at the beginning of the school year that I really admired and thought was a terrific idea is that at that first back to school night, the first time he's interacting with parents, this usually was middle school parents, and occasionally this message was also communicated to parents of younger kids, he would say, when I call home to tell you that your parent, your child cheated or lied or was aggressive or made any number of possible mistakes. I want you to know, I don't think you're a bad parent. I don't think the child has poor character. I want to partner with you to make sure that we can give that child a path forward. And I think it works so well because he is preemptively telling everybody in that room, I am going to call you. Every single one of your kids is going to make a mistake in the next few years, and I'm not going to judge you. So I think Coming at it from that developmental standpoint early on, I think can help a lot. And I think also making sure that you are not just communicating when those things happen, when things go awry, but that you're sending home emails that maybe just are sharing something funny or cute or insightful that your their child did. Mm -hmm. And also, if there's an opportunity to email something that is a more complicated piece of information or you need to respond to something that's a bit more involved or fraught, to pick up the phone or to schedule an in-person meeting, so much gets lost when you try to communicate over email. You 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 miss tone, you miss intent. Email is 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 a challenge. What a great way to almost pre-correct for that anxiety that parents have when the principal calls, or you know, just saying, "Look, it's not personal. We don't think you're a bad parent. We don't think you're you know an absentee parent. We don't think that your children are bad people. It's just we're going to talk about the issues that emerge." And so you mentioned that as being the opening kind of message that the principal uh, talked about. So let's let's talk a little bit about that opening of school. Of course, it's it's early October now, so. Uh, meet the teacher nights have kind of come and gone. We know that. But when you think about that first meeting, when when parents do come to the school and they meet uh, with the teacher for the first time, uh, what are some of the most important things for teachers to keep in mind? Like what are some of the best activities or models or ways that you've seen that first meeting be structured that makes parents comfortable uh, with the the newness of what the school year is bringing to them? So especially now when parents are rarely getting inside a school, let alone a classroom, I think I would give the same advice at any time, pre-pandemic, post-pandemic, but I think particularly now, it's especially critical that the teacher gives that parent a sense of, the, of themselves, tells their own story, lets them see their personality, maybe injects humor if that's something that they tend to do, or if they're serious, let that come across as well, but to share a bit about their background, their philosophy, and just try to bridge that divide that happens from the physical difference, this physical distance, especially right now. And then to try to focus on connecting instead of impressing. It is not the time to necessarily go through every last scholarly accomplishment or every last piece of the curriculum that you'll be covering, but rather to give an overview, to give their a sense. I think parents are much more interested in knowing how they can help their child 
with that yeah. material and how they can reach the teacher if there's a problem. It, making that connection, I love that idea of of connecting and and not necessarily um, you know, going through lists or talking about accomplishments or lists of rules or thou shalt do this, but just making that personal connection with parents so that they feel that that the teacher has has a, an understanding of them as an individual, at least as a parent, and how and the idea of how they can help at home. So when we think about the that's that initial night. When we think about the ongoing habits, we think about the routines. What are some things that you know that parents appreciate from teachers? So f- to help the listening audience, help teachers think about the habits and, and routines that are very helpful to parents from a parent perspective, what are some things that teachers do on an ongoing basis to kind of solidify that relationship and make sure that they maintain that good rapport with parents? I think that teachers can really help parents understand what's normal and what's typical for that developmental age and phase. I had to call a parent recently because their third grader had done something that involved, you know, throwing a ball over the fence, went rolling down the street. And it was maybe a moment of frustration. And I wanted to talk to the parent about this situation and how I could help the child manage frustration. And maybe if they had any ideas that they were using at home. And the parent was alarmed and said, oh my God, you know, I can't believe they would do that. What am I going to do? How am I going to handle this? And I said, let me put this into context for you. Third grade is the hardest year. They have a rush of hormones. I consider it the first seventh grade. The social dynamics are so complicated. (laughs) Everybody is testing limits and jockeying a little bit for position. And so I think that when teachers are interacting with parents, it's enormously helpful to help them understand their child through a different lens so that they can parent with a little less judgment and with a little bit more embracing of some of those messy edges that teachers take for granted that parents might know about. The first seventh grade, I have never heard that expression before, but I love that. And I think I'm going to use that. I will definitely credit you for that. But but <laughs> that's a that's a really interesting way to think about it. I've never thought of it that way before, but it's that first real sort of influx and transition point uh, for, for young learners and and young people, right? For, for pre-adolescence, just that whole... Uh, shift that happens uh, for them. So let's go. Let's go now to maybe seventh grade and and pivot to middle school students because of course you you wrote the wonderful book uh, Middle School Matters and and written primarily for parents. But I want to pivot to middle school students because you have said so many times I've heard you say it I've read it that middle school students hold a special place in your heart and I am completely with you on that because um, I absolutely loved my time working in middle school both as an administrator and as a teacher I just absolutely thought that was a, a special time because I, I find that few educators are indifferent about middle school they either love working in middle school or they do not so um, from your perspective what What is it about middle schoolers that makes them so special? So part of the reason I love to write about them and love them is because they are this magical mix. They're sophisticated, but they're also really open to forming their values, seeing the world through the eyes of adults. They're pulling away and spending more time with friends, but they still care what the adults think. They're brutally honest, (laughs) which means that they're also really, really funny and they're insightful. I often will just jot down something that a middle schooler says to me because I think, wow, that just made me think about the world or think about interpersonal connections in a different way. Today, I had a student tell me that she thinks the best part of wearing a mask is that she doesn't have to smile when she's not doing okay just to make other people feel better. And I thought that was so profound. And every day, middle schoolers are making comments that make me pause and think, you can't have a thin skin to work with middle schoolers. I think the biggest mistake that you can make is to come to the conclusion that because a middle schooler is pushing your buttons or lying to you or testing you, that means they don't respect you or they don't like you or they are just looking to make your life difficult or that they're even doing it on purpose. Half the time they're doing all of those things because they want you to prove to them that you like them and they're just testing you out a little bit or they don't know how to self-regulate and their ability to just sit in their own body is 
somewhat on the weaker side, which is also pretty typical for middle schoolers. So you have to really, you have to really embrace that those messy pieces of middle schoolers to appreciate them. Yeah. So hypothetically, um, what advice would you have for a teacher who ends up having to teach middle school? Let's say, you know, I'm a high school trained, you know, my goal was to teach high school math, but because of job availability in the school district, um, I end up teaching math at the middle school level to begin my career. And it's not really what my career goal was going to be. What advice would you give to that teacher? Or likewise, the teacher who is an elementary trained teacher who ends up teaching elementary school until maybe there's a job opening uh, at the elementary level. So what advice do you have for people to, to teachers who end up teaching at middle school for whom that's not their end goal in terms of their career, but they may end up teaching at middle school for a number of years. What's the best way for them to kind of navigate being in, in those middle school or those middle years? So again, I think you have to teach through the lens of the developmental phase, which means you need to find ways to give them a voice. You need to allow them to give you feedback, even when it's uncomfortable, whether it's related to homework. You want to set them up for success because they're so exquisitely oversensitive. You want to make sure that the way you're communicating with them is really consistent so that your tone and your body language and what you say are all in alignment. Otherwise, they're going to sniff out that inauthenticity and you're going to lose all credibility. If you're not connecting with a kid, you want to make sure you have time for one-on-one interactions. That's just key. And you want to make time for relating. So teaching is when you're telling them what you expect of them, what their behavioral expectations are, what the assignment is, how they're going to be proceeding through a group project. Relating is when you're making them the expert, when you're asking them something about themselves and showing interest in who they are. And then remember something that they said, even if you have to jot it down so that the next time you interact with them, you can lead with, how did your, how did, if they like the Patriots, how did the Patriots do last night? I know you were going to watch the game. It's those personal connections that mean everything. And you have to be willing to stop a lesson if something goes awry socially in that classroom and just address it right then and there. To me, I mean, I, like I said, I spent about half my career at, at middle school and just loved it. And, and I think that there's an opportunity for teachers to kind of learn something, even if they do end up at the other levels, right? I think of the elementary teacher who had spent some time in middle school, that opportunity gives them the vision of, of where their students are headed and how they're going to change developmentally. And likewise, the high school teacher who has those middle school years and now they're teaching in high school, they have a sense of where they've come from and how they've changed and how they've grown. I just, I've, I've often said, not, not everybody agrees with me, but I, I really do think that we all should spend some time teaching middle school because I think it's such a, it's such a challenging and yet rewarding age group of students to teach. Um, and, and, and having that experience in our, in our background really does help us on either end of the, the K-12 continuum, I think. Uh, and of course, at the middle school level, and, and one of the things I love most about middle schoolers is that, that sense of wonderment, right? They, they still have that little innocence. They're starting to become sophisticated, but they're still a little bit innocent. And they have this wonderment in those years. And, and those middle school students are always on the cusp of, of really forging their identities. It's not that your identity is solidified in high school, but it's sort of along the continuum. Whereas middle school, there, there seems to be a little bit of, um, you know, the, the identity is still in flux and understanding themselves as people and as learners. So what are the best ways from your perspective that, you know, educators, but also just adults, what are the best ways that we can all contribute positively to helping middle school students kind of establish their identities and and their values? One of the things that I think is key to helping a middle schooler grow and learn and form those values and learn how to operate and make decisions from their core values, which is something that I think is really helpful to kids that age because they have no life experience, they have no perspective. But if they know what's important to them and if they know what their values are, whether it's honesty, kindness, inclusivity, sense of humor, anything, if they can tap into their values and make a decision that's in alignment with their values, they're more often than not going to get it right. And so that's one way we wanna make sure that we're helping them form those values is just to talk about values. I think. Mm on the home front, parents should be voicing it all the time. I think teachers can do activities. I like the values card sort where you go online, you get a list of values and the values card sort will actually give you a hundred values. And what I do with my students is I cut them up into little cards and I have them choose their top 10 and then rank their top 10, 
think about why they chose the 10 they did. And then I explained to them what I just explained to you. When you're in a difficult situation, you know, should I do that devious licks TikTok challenge and trash the bathroom? Or should I skip class? Whatever it might be, to pause long enough to ask yourself if it's consistent with those values you identified. And I think that can go a long way. I also think for the identity piece, I'm a big believer in affinity groups, giving kids a space to be with other kids who might be wrestling with some of the same issues and to normalize that they don't have to have all of the answers, that everybody is going through the same process of self-discovery. I often will reassure kids that friendships shift a ton in this phase. And that's part and parcel with figuring out who you are, what you can give to a friend, what you need from a friend, but that those shifting tides and those fragile friendships make that the middle school phase so hard, especially when you don't know who you are and you're just uncomfortable in your own skin. It's so, uh, you know, managing the emotions, trying to find their identity. You speak to the idea of recognizing and helping students understand that others are going through it. I think sometimes, you know, my perception was that every middle school student thinks they're the only one feeling this way, that they're the only one who's going through that. And the more we can make them aware that this is actually a part of being a young adolescent, this is part of the uh, developmental phase that it puts them a little bit at ease to understand, um, you know, what's happening to them and, and how they're changing and, and how everything around them sort of shifts that you mentioned friendships and, uh, and their emotions are, are uh, certainly very, you know, they're very sensitive and their emotions can be very fragile. How do we help middle school students manage their emotions? What are some things that we can, maybe teach them or coach them on uh, because they are emotional creatures and, and some people continue to be emotional, but, and I don't mean that disparagingly, we just, they're, they're immature and, and their emotions can get the best of them at some time. So what are some tips for teachers and maybe even some tips for parents on how they can help coach their students or their children through those emotional roller coasters that they often experience? So I think the first thing is to help label what a child is feeling particularly for younger children, but all the way through, really, even through high school, kids can have a really hard time figuring out what's going on in their internal life. And if you don't know what's going on inside, then you don't know what problem you need to fix. If you are just completely overwhelmed, then you're going to be paralyzed, you're going to feel stuck. But if you can identify that you're stressed about a particular assignment, then you might need to call a friend or ask the teacher for help. You can actually arrive at the right solution. Or if you're lonely, call a friend. And then I think helping kids understand that there is a connection between thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. So if you have a thought that's off kilter, maybe you're every, you think everyone hates you or you're terrible at math, whatever it is that's happening in your head, that talk that you're telling yourself that you believe, because why would you lie to yourself, is going to impact your feelings, which might lead you to feel insecure or sad or jealous or angry, whatever is going to come out. And then that could lead you to behave in a way that's not necessarily going to reflect your best self. And so I often will remind kids that their feelings are involuntary. There is no such thing as a shameful feeling. You can feel whatever you want, but you can control your behavior. And it's what you do with those feelings that matters. And if you're struggling to self-regulate, one of the first things I will always say to a kid is, I bet it felt really bad to lose control. Or I bet in retrospect, it felt you feel pretty bad that you posted whatever on social media that hurt somebody else, or maybe even made you look bad. And I've never had a kid say that they're like really pleased that they did this impulsive or dysregulated act. And that's when I ask if I can work with them and help them come up with some solutions to keep them from doing that the next time. And that piece of it is going to be very individual, but teachers can offer a whole menu of options. I was looking to see, I have a jar full of popsicle sticks and I have students write down on the popsicle stick, a strategy on one side and on the other side when they used it. And teachers can add to that jar, put in strategies they use and when they used it. And if a kid is dysregulated, they can go pull a stick out of the jar and just try someone else's strategy. And the whole idea is to give them back a sense of empowerment, have them feel less helpless, that there's something they can do when they're feeling dysregulated to help themselves, which in and of itself actually helps them settle down. Yeah. As you were talking there, just it, it makes me just think of the power of acknowledgement, the idea that someone else recognizes how I'm feeling, how hard that must have been. 
that alone goes such a long, even as adults, you find that, boy, that must've been very challenging, or you must've been upset when you did that, or, you, you know, that level of noticing and that level of acknowledgement already diffuses the situation and, and makes that person feel valued, makes them feel seen, uh, allows that, that person, and especially if they're a young person who ha doesn't have maturity on their side, really makes them feel that that person cares about them. And, and that's, again, is a, a great way to authentically build relationships. Um, you know, certainly we talk about identities and, and middle school students uh, finding their identities. Uh, I want to ask you about gender dysphoria, because obviously the questions around gender identity uh, and gender norms have never been more prominent. We know it's not new. This is not a new idea. But of course, it's certainly never been as overtly talked about as it is now. So as a counselor, you know, I'm sure you've had your fair share of experiences with students who are struggling with gender identity. And, you know, certainly as adults, one of the biggest fears we have is, I think, either overreacting or underreacting, right? We, we fear that we will underreact because we just think, oh, this is just a phase that they're going through. Or we overreact to almost to a point where you smother the student so positively with intentions that we don't leave enough space for them to find themselves and, and sort of sort through what they're feeling and what they're thinking. So again, my question would be, what advice do you have for teachers or even parents, adults generally, uh, when issues of gender identity you know, come up, when, when teachers or, or parents or any adult hears an expression from a student or a child about you know, questioning or, or some indicator that there's, there's some uh, gender identity uh, questions popping up for that student, what is the right way to handle that so we don't over or underreact to the situation? So I think one of the ways that teachers and anybody working in a school can help is to not wait for those moments to normalize that everyone has an identity that they're forming as they grow up and that you're supportive, you're using positive language, no matter what that identity is, and you're providing positive examples of other people from a range of different backgrounds, identities that you can hold up as examples and not necessarily in the context of their, they have a, they, their transgender or whatever they happen to identify as, but just, it could be that they happen to be transgender and they're doing something else. Just the stories you read, the pieces from history that you share. So I think laying the groundwork for it to just be a normal, acceptable, something that that is to be celebrated, that we're not all the same along the way within the classroom. And then when it does come up, yes, we're going to underreact and overreact. That's going to happen. It's really, really hard to get it right because mm -hmm. even the kids themselves don't always know exactly what they want from the adult and can't even necessarily articulate it. They only know after the fact if it was too much or too little and that's when they might need to process it. And that's okay. I think get, then giving them that space to say, you know what, it would have been nice if you didn't make such a big deal out of it or it would have been, I really didn't expect you to act like that was nothing. It was actually kind of a big deal for me to tell you that. Mm -hmm. And then when it comes to actually the, the pronouns kids want to use or the identity they are assuming, the way they want you to refer to them. And I do have tons of students over the years who have changed pronouns or changed names or changed names and pronouns more than once. And it's hard sometimes for teachers to keep track of all of the details, but it's 150,000% worth making that effort yeah. because you will never go wrong by honoring what a kid wants you to call them, but you will go wrong if you dismiss that need to be seen, to, to feel like they are their authentic selves. And we're going to make mistakes and, and then you apologize. I did that today. I used he for a child that goes by they, and I immediately corrected myself. And this was a younger child and they were amazing. They looked at me and they said, you know, it's hard. We're all going to make mistakes sometimes and that's okay. And was really just gracious and forgiving about it. But I felt bad because I wanted to honor what they wanted the adults and the, their classmates to use as their pronouns. And for parents too, I say the same thing. Don't over freight any of it, just use the pronouns and the names that they want to use and let them know that it's okay to try on whatever identity feels right. It's also okay if that identity changes and that you'll meet them where they are. And your, your job is just to be there to support them and to honor that identity, whatever it is that they would, that they, that feels right to them at that moment. Yeah. 
that that expansive culture of acceptance and and like you say normalizing and and not living in fear or not acting out of fear but just owning your mistakes and uh and certainly you know uh, acknowledging apologizing and and just continuing to get it right we're going to do that because we're human beings and and being afraid is probably uh, less productive or counterproductive as opposed to even if you get it wrong, it's it's a chance for me to learn. It's a chance for someone else to learn. And and as you said, the you know you got a great lesson from a student today. Uh, you know, and and uh, and that's how we all grow, and that's how we all um, you know learn to create that most most expansive kind of environment. Um, Phyllis, I really appreciate uh, your your time today. I've got two more questions as we as we finish up. Um, the first one is a question I ask, uh, these two questions are questions I ask everybody who comes on the podcast. And the first one is this, and you could take this in any direction um, that you'd like, uh, but educationally speaking, uh, what keeps you up at night? So at the granular level, it's usually something related to a student that I feel is vulnerable in some way. Either their home life is unstable or they are not safe or they're not safe because they're a risk to themselves because of suicidal ideation, or they're vulnerable because they lack friends and that sense of belonging. And it's not necessarily easy to rectify that for them because they might not have the skills to connect with others the way that their classmates do and helping come up with workable, viable solutions to all of these situations, especially when I don't have complete agency. I'm not in a child's house. So it's when I feel most powerless that I would say something keeps me up at night. On a more global scale, educationally, I feel like priorities are a little bit out of whack. I would hope that the pandemic might help us recalibrate a bit, less emphasis on testing, more emphasis on unstructured play, more emphasis on taking care of kids' emotional needs, hiring to meet those emotional needs as well. One, you know, one common theme I've heard from, from everybody is the, the lessons that we really need to make sure we take from the pandemic and that recalibration that is potentially there for us. And you can, you know, it's a very real concern that we snap back into old habits and that we don't really sort of connect to those emotional issues that have really bubbled to the surface during the pandemic and, and, and has really been put in front of everybody uh, for everyone to see. These are conversations that might have been long overdue but the pandemic has kind of forced those conversations. So my last question to you, Phyllis, is uh, again, a more general question about success and happiness. It's a, it's a question I ask everyone who's on the podcast. And it's just a very simple question uh, of if a stranger stopped you on the street and asked you, what's your definition of success? How would you answer them? So I think it probably would have two parts. The first would have to do with feeling like I'm making a contribution. And we know that that's the same thing that is so important for kids' resilience, feeling like you matter, like the work you're doing has value. It's why I love being in education, because everything we do has the potential to improve a child's life or harm a child's life if we get it wrong. Right. The stakes feel very, very high. But on those days when I feel like I've helped a kid grow in some way or develop some self-awareness or some self-advocacy or a skill that allows them to connect with others. Those are the most gratifying moments for me. Mm -hmm. uh, on a professional level, personally, I feel that success is getting to do things that I feel passionately about. Like you, I love interviewing people mm -hmm. and just being a lifelong learner and learning from other people all of the time. It's why I like writing and journalism. And I find that I can get really lost in my work and have that flow that to me is a state of complete happiness professionally and then success personally is just that i have people in my life who fill my bucket who i love and who love me and that those connections those strong connections are prioritized and there's i won't say some balance because i feel like for some of us balance means you know we're either 100% on or 100% off but that mm -hmm. over time that i'm not short circuiting the things that are the most important those relationships and connections with other people yeah i i love that making a difference and making connections uh certainly if you can do those things professionally and personally 
uh, you are going to be more than successful in life for sure. Listeners, I would really encourage you to follow. I don't want to understate this, listeners. Phyllis is a prominent national contributor to so many media outlets that her credibility uh, is incredibly high. So please follow Phyllis on Twitter and on Instagram. The handle is the same on both. It's at pfagel, so at P-F-A-G-E-L-L. Uh, you can also find Phyllis on Facebook and LinkedIn as well. Just search her name, Phyllis Fagel, and I'll put links in the show notes uh, to all of Phyllis's uh, social media accounts. Uh, Phyllis, it was such a pleasure meeting you. Uh, I certainly appreciate you taking the time to join me today. Thank you. It was great to be here. In Assessment Corner this week, I'm not going to talk about a specific strategy. I want to address a certain mindset, and that is the mindset of quick when it comes to assessment. Now, I'll be the first to say that not every moment of assessment, especially when your purpose is formative, not every moment needs to be epic. You know, sometimes we overthink it. We overthink it to a point where we feel like we've got to create these monumental, show-stopping assessment events. And we don't. Assessment is just the gathering of information about student learning, so it is quite possible, and I'd even encourage teachers to do this, to create efficient ways to gather the information so they can turn that information around and cause more learning causing more learning through feedback or self-assessment or even peer assessment like we talked about last week. But here's my concern, or at the very least, my caution. Look, I get it. We're, we're all busy. And, and so I get the allure of quick or fast or easy. Uh, you know, one thing I've noticed is that a lot of blogs and a lot of social media posts intentionally use those words, quick, fast, or easy, to, you know, grab attention, gain readers, likes, retweets, all of that. And I suppose there's nothing wrong with that. And I understand, because no one wants to read the blog posts, seven super challenging formative assessment strategies that might take you five years to master. That blog post is going nowhere. No one's reading that. So... Here's the caution and, and maybe even the dichotomy, right? Assessment is complex and nuanced. And I think most educators know that. So anytime you see a post that promises quick, easy, or fast, it's alluring because we feel like we're one click away from the secret sauce. But read the fine print, so to speak. Posts that promise fast, easy, and quick may not all be of the same value. So again, read the fine print. Usually, valuable, worthwhile assessment strategies that are quick and easy in execution require a certain degree of thoughtfulness on the front end, on the design. So while using a few multiple choice hinge questions, as Dylan William calls them, you know, mid-lesson can be quite efficient in execution, designing those questions does take some thought. It isn't, or shouldn't be, just planting one correct answer and then three random incorrect answers, right? If you're using an A through D format, the incorrect answers really should provide some insight. They should represent a clear misunderstanding that should the student or a cohort of students select it, you actually gain some insight as to what the misunderstanding is. You gain some insight as to what they're thinking, what's still circling in their minds. Yes, easy in execution, but purposeful in its design. This is why for me, growing your assessment literacy, your understanding of sound assessment practices is so crucial. You don't just, for example, slap together a prompt or two for an exit slip you, you know, that you gather at the end of a lesson. You, you think through the purpose of that exit slip and you, and you thoughtfully create the prompts that elicit exactly what you're looking for. I mean, even as we get creative with our assessments where we might ask students to visually represent their thinking, you know, graphics, pictures, artistic expression, we still need to think through exactly what we're looking for, why we want that information at that moment, and what we intend to do with it. If you want students, for example, to examine exemplars and, and critique or to find errors in a presentation or logic or an error in development, you again need to think through what are the appropriate exemplars to use? So I, look, I think you get the point. When you see or hear easy, fast, or quick, read the fine print. Don't just gravitate to it because of the headline. You know, quick, easy, and fast can simultaneously be thoughtful, sophisticated, and authentic. Or it can be superficial, pedestrian, and a complete waste of time. Quality has to be our number one concern. Now, to those of you who might be creating blog posts or tweets, you know, like that, you know, as I've talked about, maybe massage the headline a little bit. 
Okay, instead of seven quick formative assessment strategies, how about seven quick and authentic formative assessment strategies or sophisticated or meaningful? Something that indicates that these aren't the equivalent of just this Pinterest post or a, a teachers pay teachers throwaway meant to generate only the most superficial reaction. We have to find the balance in our assessment work. Assessment, as I've said many times, is both simple and complex. It's simple because at this point, the fundamentals of sound assessment, the fundamentals of sound assessment practices, they've been well vetted in the academic research. We know what to do. It's complex because the breadth of what to do is vast and everything is nuanced and context dependent. So again, I understand the allure of quick, easy, fast. However, not everything can be that. And I realize that everyone is busy. But let's just think about that for a moment. We tend to always say that, oh, I don't have time for that. I'm so busy. I'm so busy. I'm so busy, which is true. But it means you're filling your minutes doing something. If our response to everything is, oh, I can't do that. I don't have time for that. I'm so busy. Well, then I guess it's fair to ask, what exactly are you doing with your instructional minutes? I don't doubt teachers' busyness. That's a given. I don't know any teacher that's not busy. But being busy and being efficient and effective with your instructional minutes, that's not the same thing. And from my perspective, and this is not going to surprise any of you, investing our minutes in designing high quality assessment experiences needs to be a priority. If you're going to spend time on anything, it is on designing high quality assessment experiences that yield high quality evidence that allows you and your students to either make an instructional adjustment or to accurately verify the degree to which students have met the learning goals. Easy, fast, or quick in execution? Absolutely. As long as the front end, the preparation, is thoughtful, sophisticated, authentic, and meaningful. All right, that's going to do it for this week. Remember to follow the podcast on Twitter for updates, at Tom Shimmer Pod. You can follow me as well on Twitter. That's at Tom Shimmer. Shimmer Education on Facebook, at Tom Shimmer Podcast on Instagram. And don't forget to check out the YouTube channel as well, Tom Shimmer Podcast on YouTube. Also, please email your questions for Assessment Corner or any suggestions you have for the podcast to TomShimmerPod at gmail.com. Next week, my guest will be my good friend and Solution Tree colleague, Luis Cruz. Luis and I are going to focus on professional learning communities and effective school leadership. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts, of course. And if you like the podcast, please spread the word about the podcast to your friends and colleagues or even on social media. I would really appreciate that. Have a great week, everyone. Bye.